You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. Colonial Pipeline corrected yesterday's IT glitch and its CEO explains the decision to pay the ransom, a rundown of recent ransomware activity, a watering hole for water utilities, credential harvesting and crypto jacking in the cloud, a banking trojan spreads from Brazil to Europe, Joe Kerrigan looks at keyboard biometrics, our guest Otan Nahum from Spectral on shifting left in security development, and the metaphysics of attribution. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, May 19th, 2021. After a brief disruption caused by an IT problem yesterday, Colonial Pipeline tweeted that it had quickly resumed full service and that the brief interruption was not the result of a cyber attack. The company said, quote, Our internal server that runs our nomination system experienced intermittent disruptions this morning due to some of the hardening efforts that are ongoing and part of our restoration process. These issues were not related to the ransomware or any type of reinfection, End quote. Colonial's CEO, Joseph Blount, confirmed to the Wall Street Journal that he did authorize payment of $4.1 million in ransom to the company's extortionists. The urgency of restoring service, combined with the company's uncertainty about how extensively its systems had been compromised, drove the decision. He acknowledged that deciding to pay the ransom was difficult, that he knew the decision would be controversial, but he judged the situation analogous to the challenge of restoring service after a natural disaster, like a Gulf hurricane. In this case, however, the disruption was more widespread than what the company usually sustains in a hurricane. Elliptic, which identified a Bitcoin crypto wallet used by DarkSide, puts the ransomware gang's take at somewhat more than $90 million. On the average, victims paid $1.9 million, They were able to track payments made from 47 wallets. DarkSide has claimed 99 successful attacks, which suggests that about half the organization's hit made some payment. At noon today, security firm eCentire published an overview of six ransomware group's activities. Ryuk Conti had 63 new victims this year. Soden R. Evil had 52. Doppelpamer came in at 59 new victims. Klopp had 35. Darkside, who are relatively new but high-profile, they had 37 victims this year, and Avedon had 47 victims so far in 2021. East Centire writes, quote, 
The high level of activity carried out by these six ransomware groups has certainly given the TRU team pause. If these threat groups are to be believed, they are wreaking havoc against many more entities than the public realizes. End quote. Industrial security specialists at Dragos have an interesting account of a watering hole that appears to have some circumstantial temporal connection to the incident at the Oldsmar, Florida water utility. Hosted on a water infrastructure construction company's site, the watering hole did not seem to compromise or deliver malware to the utility's control systems. Instead, collecting legitimate browser data for the purpose of improving the botnet malware's ability to impersonate legitimate web browser activity. Security firm Trend Micro's description of Team TNT's operation offers an interesting kill chain description of a credential harvesting campaign against cloud services. Trend Micro wrote, quote, Credentials stored in plain text serve as a goldmine for cybercriminals, especially when used in subsequent attacks. Harvested FTP credentials, for example, could lead to old-school website hacking or credential modifications, followed by ransom demands in exchange for access or data restoration. The same goes for vulnerabilities, especially those in unpatched and otherwise unsecured Internet-facing systems. Also active in the cloud are crypto-jackers. The record reports they're abusing free tiers of cloud services, It's a pretty obvious scam, really, the sort of thing that might well occur to some teenagers with too much time on their hands. The report says, quote, Gangs have been operating by registering accounts on selected platforms, signing up for a free tier, and running a cryptocurrency mining app on the provider's free tier infrastructure, end quote. Obvious, of course, doesn't mean ineffective, but what follows can be easily managed, quote, After trial periods or free credits reach their limits, the groups register a new account and start from the first step, keeping the provider's servers at their upper usage limit and slowing down their normal operations. Kaspersky researchers report that the bizarro banking trojan has spread from Brazil to targets in Spain, Portugal, France, and Italy. Bizarro may be using social engineering to induce its victims to install an app that ultimately compromises their banking information. Bleeping Computer says that a new version of Mount Locker ransomware is spreading through Windows Active Directory APIs. Its propagation is worm-like, and the gang that's distributing it has operated as a -a ransomware-as-a-service affiliate scheme, with the gang itself keeping a relatively low, by criminal standards, 20-30% to of the take. In March of this year, a new group, AstroLocker, Surface to deploy a new version of Mount Locker. Astro Locker described themselves as in an alliance with the Mount Locker gang. Attribution of cyber attacks to specific criminal groups is the last refuge of metaphysics and security, if only because identity conditions for gangs are notoriously slippery and protean. How do you recognize the same gang when it shows up again? Defense One points this out in the case of Darkseid, the group generally regarded as the one behind the Colonial Pipeline attack. The authors, both from RAND, note that, among other things, it would be unwise to accept Darkseid's self-presentation as apolitical. Cyberspace is no stranger to fronts, false flags, cutouts, and other forms of misdirection. Krebs on Security notes some evidence of, at the very least, a desire on the part of Darkseid to avoid getting on the wrong side of the Russian organs, quote, 
Darkseid, like a great many other malware strains, has a hard-coded do-not-install list of countries, which are the principal members of the Commonwealth of Independent States, former Soviet satellites that mostly have favorable relations with the Kremlin. End quote. More to the point than friendly relations with Moscow, which a number of the former Soviet republics decidedly do not enjoy, is the kind of linguistic slop that could facilitate collateral damage to Russian organizations. Better to avoid anyone using Cyrillic characters. And such damage is something a gang operating at the sufferance of the Kremlin, even if not working under state direction, would in all cases want to avoid. Cyber Reason finds Darkseid's claims to follow a high-minded Robin Hood-esque code of ethics implausible. The gang's communiques suggest that they didn't mean to impose any hardships on individuals, regular Janes and Joes, in the line at the gas station. Quote, If they are to be believed, all they saw was another slow-moving, wealthy target. They were pirates, they tell us, not privateers, and certainly not a nation-state navy. And they are honest pirates who follow a code and thus deserve some sympathy for this huge but honest mistake. Hornigold and Every before him, Darkseid wouldn't be the first criminal organization to appeal to the sympathies of their victims by claiming that they follow a strict code of ethics. It remains to be seen if it will work or if it's true. Semi-state-sanctioned crime may not repeat itself through the ages, but it often rhymes. And finally, Sergei Narishkin, director of Russia's SVR, told the BBC that not only was Russia not behind the SolarWinds compromise, but that, in fact, the American intelligence services were. Probably. And the British services, too. It's the kind of thing the Anglophone powers would do. Probably. Mr. Narishkin is flattered by the accusation that the SVR did it, but such charges are not only false, but in his words, pathetic. So there you go. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. 
That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Shift left is a phrase often heard applied to software development and software security. But what exactly does it mean? Dotan Naham is the CEO and founder of Spectral, a code security company. And he joins us to help make sure that understanding shift left is something that we get right. There's one thing I'd like to say is that uh, history repeats itself. Hmm. So actually shift left isn't uh, so new. Uh, I mean, if we look at the QA, which is, you know, it's uh, quality assurance in software. Um, So, and we go back maybe 20 years, that uh, as a profession that has evolved. So we used to ship software and uh, we used to have this epic moment where software was being uh, tested in terms of uh, for quality and looking for bugs. Uh, And we had specialized uh, uh, personnel that were actually testing the software. And there was this big event, which we called GA, and we burnt the software on a, on a CD, and we shipped it to our customers that way. Right, the golden master, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, even the, even the term is, is taking from there. And then around 2001, there was like extreme programming, you know, a movement uh, led by Kent Beck, which is, uh, you know, a unit testing uh, superstar. Um, and then unit testing uh, was... Uh, kind of introduced as a practice and but you know what just fast forward 20 years to today and today unit testing is very very natural and manual testing uh you know is kind of awkward so that that is kind of an evolution that happened in software and you know it's it's basically intuitive and and we can all connect to that because we've all experienced bugs so in that terms uh shift left is how do we break this epic event called testing security in production or uh, getting an audit or getting a pen tester. And how do we take that thing and kind of bring it toward the start of development development process? So the actual term of, of shift left refers to moving it earlier in the process, having it not be something that happens at the very end. Correct, correct. So it, it assumes that left is the beginning and the right is the, is the end, like reading uh, an English uh, sentence. Mm. And actually the left side is actually the left side of the software development life cycle, uh, which means the left side is the start and the right side is whatever, like deploy to production and ship your software. Mm. So is this the shape of things to come? I mean, does it seem as though overall the industry is, has recognized that this is the way they should be heading? Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, it's all about optimization. I mean, every, you know, every, every society, every uh, organization, every everything that that needs to produce is actually, uh, you know, if you look at this in a philosophical way, is trying to optimize, uh, and we're running out out of things to optimize, right? So scale that was an issue like back in 2011 up to 2014, and it's still it's still kind of an issue, but you know. Back then, databases, document databases, and all kinds of new databases were emerging just to compensate for the scale problem that was caused by, you know, by the network effect. 
that everyone are were building a, a their own Facebook and and Twitter was born and social networks were, were you know emerging every every now and then uh, but you know it's kind of uh, so where the scale problem these days you hardly hear of uh, of uh, of apps organizations that are crashing due to scale problems these days where in 2014 it was kind of a couple times a quarter and so it looks like security is the next thing to optimize and that that is what's what's happening that's Dutan Nahum from spectral Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute and also my co-host over on the Hacking Humans podcast. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Uh, yeah, I had this interesting uh, Indiegogo caught my eye. This is one of those fundraising uh, uh, platforms. Uh, and there's a, a security-related one that uh, some folks are trying to spin up here. And uh, the product is interesting, but I thought more it, it also speaks to an interesting um, uh, way of uh, tracking people online. And right. I thought we might have an interesting conversation about that. Why don't you give us a little background here, Joe? So the... Concern. This is from somebody named Paul Moore, who is the founder of something called Privacy Protocol. Yeah. And Paul's con- concern here is that biometric tracking of the way you type can identify you. Mm-hmm. And in the uh, Indiegogo ad, he says that they can identify your th- these algorithms can identify your gender within ten keystrokes. And then identify you uniquely with just a few more keystrokes. Right. So everybody has their own unique cadence right. when they type. You yes. have, yeah. And so they can look at that cadence, uh, assign that to you, and then when you show up typing somewhere else, they can say, aha, I recognize this cadence. That's correct. Okay. And this can be used for tracking you across uh, different platforms. Uh, I am almost positive that some of the social media sites out there are already using this kind of thing to mm-hmm. identify you uh, on online, even without your knowledge. Uh, it can be done locally with JavaScript on, you know, in, in your web browser. So your, your computer actually does the processing to send back the fingerprint to the AI algorithm that then does the comparison. Mm-hmm. And uh, from there on, they've got you. Uh, there, there's an interesting article that Paul links to in here from Ars Technica from way back in 2015. Hmm. You remember 2015, Dave? <laughs> Vaguely. <laughs> <laughs> from Dan Goodwin. It's how the way you type can shatter anonymity even on Tor. Hmm. Okay. If, I mean, Tor is a great anonymity tool yeah. out there. It does a really good job of, of anonymizing your traffic. But 
if you allow JavaScript to run on a web browser and somebody fingerprints your typing, they've got you. Mm-hmm. They've got you uh, pretty. They've identified you, and your privacy is gone. It doesn't matter how many different Tor nodes you're coming through. If they have a way of saying, "Who is this? This is Dave Bittner." Right. Then guess what? They they know it's you. I mean, it's like you go to Facebook and log in from Tor. Then Facebook knows who you are right. on <laughs> right. that entire Tor session. Sure, right? sure. Um, what this project does is uh, this project is actually uh, on Indiegogo is actually a hardware a piece of hardware that you plug your keyboard into and then you plug this into your uh, keyboard slot on your computer through the USB port. So it's essentially like a an intermediate USB device. Yeah, little little USB man in the middle. Right, exactly. Okay. So it alters the timing of how you type. I don't know if there's any um if there's any visible output outcome of this. As you're typing things show up and you can notice how much slower they show up. Yeah. Uh yeah. I don't. I don't know. I've never used this device. It seems like a really good idea. Mm-hmm. They, they have a Chrome plugin, which was how they got started on this. Right. There is a Chrome plugin that kind of does the same thing. But one of the one of the arguments they make in their article here for the uh, Indiegogo campaign is that the Chrome plugin can be detected, mm-hmm. and this device cannot be detected. Right. Uh, I'm not sure how comfortable I am plugging in. A USB device directly into my keyboard. <laughs> I mean, I'm not. I'm not trying to impugn Paul's character here. Sure, I, I'm sure Paul Moore is is a good guy, and and but you know, it's there's all kinds of opportunities for supply chain attacks. On this. Sure, sure. Uh, but this should be something that maybe uh, people like Dell and Apple should start considering, mm-hmm. uh, and Microsoft, I guess, because Microsoft also makes hardware now. Maybe you should start. Adding this as a feature to your to your keyboards or offering it as an option. Yeah, it could just be built into the OS, I suppose. Where it could be built into the OS. That's it correct. just randomizes uh, the delay between characters so that it takes away their ability to track you biometrically or smooths it out. Who knows what the most effective way is? It seems as though these people who are behind this keyboard privacy project, they've, according to their testing, whatever they're doing here is is very effective. Right. It looks like these algorithms have have no success once once you use the hardware. Yeah. This reminds me of something I thought of many, many years ago, which was instead of using passwords, could you use pass rhythms? You know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you, you, you can. Yeah. And but the problem with that is this is a biometric. Yeah. Uh, and I've made clear my feeling on biometrics. Um and I'll I'll just restate it here. My my problem with biometrics is they're immutable. You can mm-hmm. never change them. So it, because of that, it's it's. Uh, I think that there, there is, there are, there's a good attack model, uh, a good threat model of impersonation, and making impersonation a lot easier. Yeah, yeah. Particularly with these, with these rhythms. I, you know, if I can identify the biometric rhythm with which you type, I can impersonate it very easily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, it's an interesting project. Again, it's over on Indiegogo. It's called Keyboard Privacy. If you want to uh, chase it down, uh, Joe Kerrigan. Thanks for joining us. My pleasure, Dave. And that's The Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. 
Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. Visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.